Our scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians 17 through 313. It's a bit of a trick, so you'll have to bear with me. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we will encourage, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have the privilege of reading it in public here, Lord. I pray that you would open our hearts this morning, that you would quiet our minds from the distractions and busyness of this week, and that we would be ready to receive what you have for us. I pray that you would bless Alan, that you would be with him, and that you would continue to bless our time. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing our series in the uh, epistles to the church in Thessalonica. And, and let me just remind you in general what's happening here. Um, Paul had gone to Thessalonica on one of his missionary journeys, and he had preached there about Jesus and a lot of people believed. Um, and so a new church very quickly formed there. But there was an also, also an awful lot of opposition um, to his preaching. Uh, so much so that a riot broke out and Paul and Silas had to escape for their lives in the middle of the night uh, to keep from being killed. And so once they got away, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on this new church that he hardly got a chance to, to even see, just to see how they're doing. 
And immediately Paul sits down and pins this letter back to the people to encourage them, to instruct them. Um, as you see in, in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. And so he's writing immediately back to the church. But as he's doing so, what we're learning is by getting to overhear what Paul uh, has said to them are, are really some amazing teachings. And particularly today, what we're able to learn is how it is that people actually change. How do people really change? Because, you see, Paul has seen some incredible transformation in the hearts and the lives of those people. And, and so we're asking, um, how, how did he do that? And, of course, it was God who did the changing. It wasn't Paul. But how did God use Paul particularly? What can we learn from how he did? Now, listen, I think this is a very important subject for us to study together today because in our world, and particularly, I think, over the last decade, we've seen a huge shift in our culture from having leaders of great influence to now having power-hungry people wanting to use coercion and pressure to force their policies and their agendas on us. And, and you see, this is a very important distinction for us here. Power is what you use to change people from the outside in, where you force it. Whereas influence is what you use to change people from the inside out. See, power is coercing change, forcing change, whereas influence is leading people to the point that they want to change. And, and you see, Paul knew exactly what this was like because he had seen the various Caesars trying to use their coercive power to rule over the people uh, by fear, by punishment. <clears throat> but he also knew what it was like to grow up as a Pharisee, the religious leaders of his day who used the very same powers of coercion to try and force the people into submission spiritually um, through applying the laws of God with a big stick or a, or a bludgeon. And it's ironic that I think those very same two maladies that Paul dealt with seem to dominate our culture as well today. Again, over the last decade, we've seen universities proactively teaching kids how to change culture by forcing people, by shaming people, by even erasing people uh, into following their social and moral agendas. And spiritually, we have the very same mentality in our culture as the uh, teachers of Jesus' day, where the church tends to use the outside-in coercion of the laws of God applied through guilt and shame and fear. And the, the church often believes that that's really the best way for how people should change, to become better people, to become good. And so I think we can resonate with a lot of the things that Paul is talking about here because we're facing the very same things. But what's so amazing here, if you think about it, is how incredibly successful Paul was at it and the way that he brought change into that context. Because listen, here's a guy who had absolutely no power whatsoever, right? I mean, nobody had to listen to Paul. And he shows up in this city as a complete stranger. And what he preaches is a very offensive message to everybody. You see, the Jews were offended because the gospel claimed that Jesus, a mere man, uh, was God himself, something the Jews could never abide. 
And the Greeks were offended because the gospel claims that Jesus is the only way to the only God. And the Greeks hated that because they had all sorts of gods. And yet in spite of all of this, people changed. Lots of people changed. Enough people changed to grow a church and start a riot. (laughs) And listen, those very same objections to the gospel are still found all around us today. Religious people really hate the idea of free grace because there has to be something for me to do. There's got to be some sins that I can avoid. There has to be some discipline that I can use to cooperate with God. Otherwise, that means those dirty pagans out there are just as accepted and loved as somebody who's good and moral like me. And so religious people hate the gospel. But so do irreligious people. See, irreligious people tend to really love some of the teachings of Christianity. They love some of the principles that Jesus lays out. Uh, But in the end, I have to be the one who decides which ones to follow and which ones to reject. And see, modern irreligious people tend to look back on the events that happened in Thessalonica and they say, well, of course these people believed, right? They They were primitive people. Of course they believed in God. They believed in all sorts of gods. They weren't educated like we are today because now we have science and now we know better. But listen, that whole objection just flies in the face of the facts here because the people didn't like it. In fact, they hated it enough that they caused a riot and threatened to kill Paul and Silas. So they, they didn't particularly cooperate very well. And yet in spite of all that, many people believed. And they believed the message again from a man with no power, uh, with no authority, who didn't have a very popular message, and yet lives were transformed. And so the question that we're asking is, why is it that Paul was so influential like that when others aren't? Listen, what we're asking is, how do you really change people? See, most of us have tried throughout our lives to change people. We certainly have tried with our kids, right? Usually reverting to power because I said so, right? That's the main reason we want our kids to obey. That's outside-in, coercive power. We've tried it with our family members, often uh, arguing about who's right. And we really aren't very good at it because we tend to always focus on outward behavior, the outside-in kind of change. We use power and coercion through manipulation and fear and shame rather than the beauty of influence, And of course, the religious models in our culture tend to preach the very same thing. So how does Paul do this? And how can we do this? So let's let's get into this. And the first thing I want you to see here is that Paul very clearly gave his heart away and he let the people know it. He was so deeply invested in them that he said, my joy is bound up with your joy. He, He was so deeply and so personally invested in them that he said, I really can't be happy unless you guys are happy. He shared in their hurts. He shared in their pains. He shared in all of their joys. And listen, if we're honest, we all know what it's like to be invested in somebody and yet keep a coat of Teflon between your heart and theirs. Right? I'm in, but not 100%. See, if it doesn't cost you when you see somebody in trouble, you're really not all in. I mean, you might care, but you're not all in. It's got to cost you. But you see, Paul's investment here goes to that deep level. I mean, look at his wording in the letter, chapter two, verse 17. 
we were torn away from you. That word torn away is a euphemism in that culture to mean death. Your loved ones were torn away from you in death. That's the kind of language he's using. He goes on in that same verse. He said, out of intense longing, we had to come and see you. And that word intense longing is a word that ought to be familiar. We've talked about it many times in Greek. It's the word epithumia, which means an over-desire. And it's almost always translated in the Bible as lust. And it's always used in a negative way to describe sin. And yet Paul here has the audacity to say that we lust after your personal presence. And then verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2, he says, You are our glory and our joy. My joy is bound up with your joy. You know, this this is what we often say about parenthood, that you can only be as happy as your least happy child. It's kind of the way parenthood works. And you see, what Paul is saying here is that their happiness and, and, and my happiness are absolutely linked together. I'm no longer capable of being emotionally independent of you. And that's what he's saying. And then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, after Timothy returns and shares this report, he says, now we really live. And literally what he's saying is, when I thought you guys were doubting the gospel, when, when I was afraid that you were falling back into your old ways, I was dying on the inside. It was killing me. But now I'm alive again. Now, is Paul just exaggerating here? Is this just preacher hyperbole? I mean, you know how preachers can be. Uh, And I think the only way that we can know that it was not and that it was really true is by looking at the results of his ministry. Because lives were actually changed in ways that, frankly, most preachers never see. Um, Tim Keller gives a great example of this in his recently published uh, biography. It's been a great book to read. And he talks in here about uh, the very first church that he pastored in rural southern Virginia. You can relate to that where this Yankee with tons of head knowledge and incredible uh, smarts was preaching to a bunch of blue-collar good old boy Southerners. And in that town, he ran across a fellow pastor by the name of Kennedy Smart. Now, I personally knew both uh, Keller and Kennedy Smart, and Kennedy was probably the most gregarious, outgoing, emotionally invested person that, that I've ever met. And Tim tells a story about how he found himself one day um, at the hospital making his pastoral rounds. Um, And and he says this. He says, um, uh, he's writing this biography. He says, when they bumped into each other, visiting church members in the hospital, Keller observed how smart, uh, Kennedy Smart, engaged with the staff and the patients. He knew the name of every person walking in and out of the hospital. He knew enough to ask specifics about each of their family members. And when he finished talking and praying with a member of his church, he'd moved from room to room, checking in on other patients and offering to pray for them uh, as well. And, you know, I mean, Kennedy Smart was one of these guys. He just knew everybody and he knew everything about everybody and everything about every person in your family and every detail. And he would just follow up personally. Um, and, and Keller says that Kennedy ended uh, that conversation that was mentioned in that book by saying, listen, Tim, you can preach like Charles Spurgeon, but if you don't love those people, they're never going to change their minds about anything. And of course, Keller quips that his first thought was, well, then why did I just waste thousands of dollars learning Greek and Hebrew just to love people? <laughs> but of course, it was one of the big learning opportunities for him. Because listen, the, 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 the best and the greatest preaching and teaching in the world without that kind of love is really just a power play. 
right? It's, it's there to make the teacher look good or to gain a bigger following for me or maybe to get your people to fall in line. Listen, people don't need answers to all their questions. They don't need perfect truth. They need love. And it's love that opens the door for people to listen. And if we're honest, we have to admit that Christians have traditionally done a really poor job of this. We're, we're prone to throwing out um, biblical advice and laws and rules and Christian platitudes, but we're not as likely to get our hands dirty actually helping people. We're not a very welcoming place for seekers. We're not a very welcoming place for the LBGTQI. I've lost track of it all, the crowd, the trans crowd, the emotionally messy people that we just don't want to have to invest ourselves with. And we've often done it to our kids, shaming them and acting better than they really are just to make me look better as a parent. The church is notorious for conveying the message to the world, go clean up your act first, and then you're welcome to come here. And listen, I think this is the only explanation for how Paul could show up as a complete stranger with such a hated message, with no power of his own, and transform people like he did, because he loved them. And I think this is a lesson that we need to learn together as a church, that we need to be a community that knows how to love. Right? We are not looking for wise people who have all the right answers. We're not looking for evangelists who know how to win people. We're not looking for theologians who can teach people. We're looking for people who know how to love others because they have first been loved by God themselves. And people who are willing to invest in them and to care for them and to get your hands and your life dirty, deeply, personally, intimately engaged in the lives of those around us. Listen, do you want to share the gospel with somebody? Simply share the story of your own transformation out of love for them. That will do more than listening to a year's worth of my sermons, I can guarantee you. All right? Do you, do you ladies, for example, know how to love the other ladies of this church who've gone through a miscarriage? Oh, I wouldn't know what to say. Listen, that's an easy and convenient cop-out. Just love them. Just show up. Just care. Do you guys know how to come alongside one of the other guys who's lost his job and just sit with him in the midst of his pain and his rejection? Do you know how to show up when there's been a death in the family? I mean, listen, this is far more than joining a meal train or, or sending a card in the mail. It's a personal investment of love and compassion. See, that's what Paul did with these people. He loved them extravagantly and he gave his heart away to them and they knew it. And so they listened. That's the first thing. But then secondly, there's, there's a balance to this that made it work. Because secondly, Paul also, though he gave his heart away, he also kept his head. And he let his people know that as well. Because see, even though he's given away his heart to them, he's not emotionally dependent on them. Because listen, we, we all know what happens if you give away both your head and your heart. You become emotionally dependent on those people. Or as Tim Keller used to put it, warming your self-esteem at the fire of their approval. And see, on the other hand, you, you can hang on to both your head and your heart. And you can become very emotionally aloof and independent. So it's not my problem, right? I'll, I'll pray for you. Just go away. 
But you see, Paul here is neither. I mean, notice actually how he combines both of them in verse 10. He says, I can't wait to see you guys so that I can address your shortcomings. <laughs> Isn't that great? Or, or listen to how Paul puts it later on in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 10. He says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Or in verse 12, they are not busy, they're busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. He goes on in verses 14 and 15, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Listen, if you keep your head and your heart, there will not be any change in the people around you. You know, you're saying, good luck. I'm praying for you. I wish you well. Now back to me and my life. And if you give away both your head and your heart, there's going to be no change in people either because you will be become emotionally dependent on them. And you can't call them out for any errors because you're more concerned about being liked than you are about actually helping them. But you see, Paul here gives away his heart, but he keeps his head so that he can still call them to the truth. He can still hold them accountable, but he can do it in love. And let me just give you some tests here so you can see maybe which way you might be falling here. When you give away both your head and your heart, what you really want from people is their approval. More than you want their healing, more than you want their health and their joy and their rescue, you want the approval of you. And so you're just using them, right? You just want their love, but you really don't want the person. And as a result, you, you won't give them any criticism, because you're afraid they might not like you if you do. Oh, if I told them the truth, they just wouldn't like me, right? I'm more in love with myself than I am with them. That's what that means. Not only can you not give any criticism, you can't take any criticism as well, right? I can't take any criticism from other people because I don't want to feel bad about myself. See, Paul doesn't want them um, to be unhappy, but he's certainly willing to risk their unhappiness with him if it leads to their happiness. And you see, if we're honest, we're exactly the opposite. Most of us can bear other people being unhappy as long as they aren't unhappy with me. And so we often opt for the easier path of giving away both our head and our heart because it's just easier for us. It, it costs me less, even if it costs them by not getting the healing that they need. And then there's some tests on the other side. If you hang on to both your heart and your head, you'll tend to be a very judgmental person. People are messing up all around you and your only thought is, what's wrong with them? You know, why can't they be more like me? But I want you to notice here that even though Paul gave his heart away and kept his head, he's still pretty harsh with his commands here. I mean, you don't work, you don't eat. That's pretty harsh. And as a result, I think one of the things that we need to learn here is that if you give your heart away and you keep your head with other people, you're still going to be accused of being judgmental, even if you're not, even if your motives are, are pure, because you're daring to step in and correct somebody, which, of course, in this day and age is something you're simply not allowed to do, right? Which, if you think about it, is ironic and hypocritical because the modern person says it's wrong to judge other people. But apparently it's not wrong to judge those who are judging other people. Try and figure that one out. But listen, if, if we're honest, 
Everybody is into moral evaluation in some way or another. I mean, we do it all the time. We can't help it. But if you give your heart away, but not your head, you can hold people accountable without being judgmental. See, Paul says here, I don't regard any of you as an enemy. I'm not above you somehow. You know, Paul here tells us to warn our brother when we see them in sin. And again, in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, he says, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. And when he talks about making them feel ashamed, he's saying, so they'll wake up. I want them to see how bad things are. Listen, do you criticize people out of love in order to win them back? Or do you criticize people in order to hurt them and push them away? Because listen, you can tell somebody the truth just to pay them back and not to wake them up. You can tell somebody the truth just because it, it makes you feel superior. You know, I'm not like that. But, but you see, a judgmental person tells the truth always to push people away. A judgmental person typically goes beyond the truth and assigns motives to their actions. Because you see, that, that's how you know that that person driving in front of you is a jerk. You know it because, it, you know, it, it's, it can't be because they're afraid. It can't be because they just had some tragedy and they're crying driving down the road. No, I, I know it's because they're a jerk. I'm assigning them motives. Whereas a people changer is somebody who tells the truth rather than to push people away, but it's to draw them close because it's to redeem. It's not to punish. Gospel transformation comes when you are lovingly committed to another person where you want their deepest joy and their deepest healing more than you want their comfort and their approval. See, you want what's best for them, even if they end up being mad at you, even if it risks being misunderstood, even if it makes the relationship kind of awkward for a while, because you love them more than you love yourself. That's what changes people. Because changing people from the inside out is the primary business of the gospel. And only those who have first received the unconditional love of God are freed up to be able to extend that same kind of unconditional love to others so that you can change hearts the way Paul did. Now, finally, I just want to ask, how can you do this? I mean, is it even possible? Because sometimes it just feels like it's not. I can't love people that way. Well, this passage tells us it obviously is possible because Paul did it, Right? Um, and, and it changed the history of the world. So how can we do this? And, and I, the key, I think, comes in chapter 2, verse 19, where he says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? I think the key here is the crown. See, when you give away both your head and your heart, you're just trying to get the approval of other people. And, and, and your crown is being liked being approved on, being popular, right? And, and when you hang on to both your heart and your head, you're just using uh, people to feel superior to them as a way to validate yourself that I must be better than them. And so your crown is your moral superiority. But you see, Paul had a very different vision than either one of these because he, he concludes by looking at those people and saying, you are our crown, you are our glory, you are our joy. Now, what is Paul telling us here? 
when he talks about this crown. I think there's two things. There's a, first of all, I think a limited sense in which, um, how to put this, when, when, you're, when, when people come to City Church and maybe they're evaluating, is this the kind of church that I want to invest myself in? Um, is this the kind of place that I want to call home? I mean, sure, they, they look up here, they listen to the message. What's this guy preaching? Sure, they're watching the worship, you know, does it resonate with me? But more than anything else, and, and you need to know this, even more importantly, what people most are looking at is you. <laughs> what kind of people are you? How, how well do you love? How invested are you to serve? Is this stuff really changing you? Or are they just, are you guys just like a lot of other churches that I've seen that know how to talk to talk, but are just full of shallow, greedy, judgmental, superior bigots who like to play church on Sunday? See, you are the glory of this pastor. <laughs> you see, every time we gather, you are answering the questions of the cynics and the guests. Why should I even listen to a thing this guy is saying if people don't reflect what I'm hearing? And listen, there's nothing that will kill a pastor faster than attenders who are indifferent to the message that is preached. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in preaching on this passage, told this to his congregation. He said, I live by your spiritual joy. I suffocate on your spiritual indifference. I choke to death on your spiritual misery. I am tied to you. I can't help it. And that is so true. More true than you will ever know. And essentially what Paul is addressing here is why should anybody ever honor the message of the gospel if it's not being lived out by the people who hear it week in and week out? But there's also, I think, a more broad application of what Paul means here because he's talking about relationships in general, not just the relationship of a pastor to his church. And what he's saying is if you really want to change people, you've got to have this same vision for people that I'm telling you about here, that you are our crown in, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word presence here is the word in Greek that means parousia, it, the parousia was a, a technical term in the New Testament time that meant the coming of the Lord, the breaking into history of God himself. And there were two parousias. There was his first coming at Christmas, and then it talks about the, the parousia, when he comes and returns uh, one day for a second time. And, and what Paul is saying here to these people in this church, he says, I cannot wait for the day that Jesus comes back and we all stand before his presence in heaven, and you will be my crown. Now, what does he mean by that? I think it's actually summarized in, the, in, in our text in verse 13 of chapter 3, when he says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. See, he cannot wait to see the blameless people that they will become when Jesus returns. And you see, Paul is just doing to these people what Jesus had already done to him, right? The life and the death of Jesus has declared him to be righteous. And see, Jesus can't wait for the day when you and I will actually become, in reality, what he has declared you to be right now. And that's how Paul views these people. And we've talked about this before. You know, this is actually what forms the basis for a biblical marriage, right? It's not 
two people who are selfishly drawn to each other to fill each other's needs up, but is having a vision for all the beauty that your spouse will be, will, will be able to become one day in heaven when all of your brokenness and all of your weakness and all of your sins are redeemed. And what you say to God is, I'm attracted to that and I'm committed to work alongside you, God, to see that come to pass. That is a biblical marriage. But it's also a model for how we treat everybody in general. See, if all your Christianity is is just nothing more than trying harder to be a better person, you're never going to invest in people like that. It's just too messy. It's too deep. It's too personal. Because, I mean, let's be honest, my life is really about me, and everybody else kind of gets in my way. But you see, what makes you a Christian is that Jesus has come and opened your eyes to the reality of your sin and the real offer of his substitution for you. And maybe he's working on that, been working on that process for years to bring you to this place. See, Christianity is not deciding to be a better person. It's seeing that you have been acted upon. And because I've been acted upon with grace, it makes me patient with other people. And because I've been acted upon with love and mercy, it gives me a deep love to see the very same rescue come to others that Jesus has brought to me. See, Jesus is far more than an example to follow. You know, Jesus didn't just write us a book and say, guys, here's the rules. Good luck. You're on your own. Do your best to follow them. No, he has come and he has lived the life that each one of us owe to God. And he dies the death that each one of us owes because of our rebellion. And he does all that for us in our place as our substitute. And therefore, Jesus now presents us before the Father and Jesus looks at what he has accomplished. He looks at you and me and he says it was worth it. Right? The prophet Isaiah says the result of his suffering he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus looks at you and he says my infinite suffering was worth it if I can have you. Do you hear God saying that over you? Which means you are infinitely valuable to God. We are his inheritance. We are his wealth. We are his crown and his joy. And Paul is simply taking that vision of how God treats him and looks at him, and he's turning around, he's applying it to the people in this church. Because you see, a Christian is somebody who, who can look through the ugly, wormy, caterpillar version of the broken you today and can see the beautiful butterfly that you will become. And then you get committed to investing in that person to see it come to pass. See, in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? See, Paul is most happy when he's thinking about and he's praying for these people. He gets so excited about what God is making them into. And you see, his goal isn't to feel better about himself because, oh, all these people are listening to me. His goal is not to feel better about himself because all these people admire him. His goal is their healing. His goal is their ultimate happiness in Jesus. See, his goal is their glory. All the beauty that they will become one day in Jesus. And Paul is simply giving the other people here the very same thing that Jesus had first given to him. And he asked them to take the same vision and apply it on to other people. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, May the Lord make your love an, an increase and an overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. 
See, Jesus came and gave this to me. I'm giving it to you. I'm asking you to go give it to one another. And that's how people change. You have to see how Jesus first loved you. And you have to so fill your heart with the wonder of it that you can take the Teflon coating off your heart and just love people and invest in people and enjoy people and be risky to let them into your life. Just as God has a shepherd heart for you, you are called to have a shepherd heart for those around you. You need to have people that you can disciple and, and people who are discipling you. We've got to let each other in to the reality of our lives and our brokenness and our fears. That's the only way we will ever change. You, you just simply can't come here week after week and listen to me preach and sing all the songs and expect you're going to change. I mean, some of you, I suppose, would probably like it if I could just follow you around and personally speak to you all the time each day. But that's not possible, right? There's just too many of you. And so you're going to have to do it for each other. You have to be a body. You have to be a living body. Listen, fill your heart up every day with the reminder that Jesus gave his heart away for you. But he also kept his head and tells you the truth of why you need him. And you got to let that melt your heart so that you can freely give it away to others. Let that fill you with a deep conviction about what things are true and what things are noble and what things are right and what things are pure and what things are lovely and what things are admirable and what things are praiseworthy. And as you do that, you've got to filter it all through the love of a God who was willing to give up everything just to get you. May that give us the motivation that we need to be the kind of people who love and invest and care for others and care for their healing more than we care for our own comfort and our easy lives. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this model of how to change people, a model that we learn from how you have loved us, a model that we see in Paul's life lived out and a model we desperately long to be a definition of what we're like as a community. And I pray that you would help for us to learn to uh, to grow in what it means to love one another and serve one another and care for one another so that we are not simply on our own private journey to heaven, um, giving people advice and platitudes, but rather we are a community, a family that grieves together and rejoices together and invests deeply in the lives of one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.